Welcome to the JMS Podcast. My name is Jorge M. Sanchez and thank you for tuning in. Today's guest, we have San Jose State University professor Fred Guest. He's a real cool guy. And uh, Fred, we hit it off immediately because I was a student of his. And the minute I talked about uh, stand-up and podcasting, he was very intrigued. And I, later I find out that he's very much into those things. And, uh, and I knew he would be a great guest to interview here. And I'm glad he came around because uh, a lot of things we talked about is something he talks about in his classes. And I think these are subjects are very profound and, and things are important to think about, especially if, you know, if you are really interested in the way how our media impacts our daily lives. So before we get to the conversation with Fred Gesto, uh, I want to remind you guys, I have currently a GoFundMe campaign for this podcast. Please check out JMS Podcast at GoFundMe.com. Uh, I have links to this page on the JMS Podcast Facebook page and on the website. So if you get a chance, check it out. Just uh, type in JMSPodcast.com. All right, it's that simple. And don't forget to sign up for our mailing list. Uh, keep up with local content I'm putting up and all that jazz. All right. Without much further ado, let's get on with our talk with Fred Guess. Fred, how long have you been into podcasting? Because honestly, before I even got into podcasting, I didn't really care too much for it. It wasn't until like I really did it and I realized, holy crap, there's a whole like universe of podcasting out there and communities and you were the one who really opened up because I remember I, I told you about it I was, like, I was like five episodes in and you're like oh yeah podcasting and you went like as far back as like years uh, of, of attending podcast festivals of and I was like wow like people really dig this stuff it is but still very niche I mean if we talk about like an episode of Big Bang Theory versus like the whole universe of podcasting like there's probably more people watching a single episode of Big Bang Theory than there are listeners for the majority of podcasts I should say mm. maybe not you know what I mean mm. it, it's still in a very niche market it's not you know like my parents aren't listening to it there's still you know uh, I've talked to other instructors and they go oh wasn't that something that was around in the 90s or the early 2000s you know like this flash in the pan thing so there's a niche market how long I've actually been into it as uh, I well I have a different history but I would say podcasting itself has not been like that long but since uh, probably seven eight nine years Hmm. I guess. What kind of podcasting was going on at those times? Well, I was listening to comedy podcasts. And it's kind of funny how I got into it because there were podcasts that existed. And I did know some of the history of podcasting, but I've kind of forgot a little bit of it. Uh, but one of the oldest comedy ones is like Jimmy Pardo's uh, Never Not Funny. Hmm. He's considered one of the first established comedy ones. And he had that pay tier method. And they still do a pay tier method, but now they have two shows a week where one's free and one's part of the pay subscription. And to be honest, I never was that stoked about paying for content, even though someone has to make money to create it. Right. Which is kind which, of. Which is something you dove into in your class. Yeah, which is kind of the crux of it. Like, who's going to pay for this? Right. You know, and, and what's fascinating because your class, out of all the time I spent in, in San Jose State, I think when I took your class, it really opened my eyes to a different side of entertainment. And and, and one of these things you mentioned is people, if people are not paying for content, that's going to result into shitty quality. It could, or they're going to get their money from somewhere. If you look at what Comcast is doing, Comcast. Uh, started out as an internet company no I mean as a cable company right mm -hmm. basically but then they they bought up distribution networks uh, distribution channels and what I mean by that so they now own part or they own NBC 
but they also have cable. They also were part uh, of the initial companies that started Hulu. So people keep saying, well, we're not going to pay for it. Well, screw it. We still own NBC, but we're just going to charge you for the cable. We're going to pay. You're going to pay somewhere. Mm. You're going to pay along the lines. And like the advertising that you hear in, in, uh, in, in podcast on streaming radio, that goes to pay for. But the money's lowering. Like the money, and what I mean by that, and I don't mean that the quality's going to suffer, but it could. But artists make less money. Musicians make less money for the general part. Like what people make from Spotify streaming services are pennies on the dollar what they get from an album. Mm-hmm. It only takes them about, it would take millions of streams on Spotify versus like a couple thousand actual physical copies to pay a month's rent. Mm-hmm. But on Spotify, you have to do millions of streams to get it because your, your payout's like in the 0.003 cent range per song which is why marketing is more important more than ever now. yeah which is why more and more bands are going to be like touring bands performing bands and you're going to make your money off the live concerts etc etc like uh <clears throat> there's this guy from a band called cracker which used to be camper van beethoven who talked about he makes more from selling a t-shirt than he gets from streaming for a year on Spotify basically you know I'm kind of paraphrasing I could be a little bit off on my numbers but that's the gist right but um, I feel like I've diverted away from the original question that's okay this happens a lot in podcasting okay. but the I don't mind if you don't mind we could go back to what no we're talking about. but you're just talking about because somebody does have to pay for it right somebody does but there's pros and cons to all this there's pros and cons because um um God, I can't forget the guys. I, the guy that started Maker's Fair, and uh, he came from uh, uh, not Ready Made, but Maker's Magazine. He came up with the concept of the long tail, and uh, so when you get down to AMC, like I like talking about AMC because AMC has an operating budget of two point something billion. No, IFC channel. I'm sorry, the IFC channel mm-hmm. has about two billion and some change right so two point whatever billion uh as a company for all their channels which is ifc this you know bbc america all these things not for a show and so their operating budget was about the equivalent of what star wars made so for a whole network for a whole network with multiple channels the money that the whole company has is the same amount of money that the one movie by Disney made. <laughs> and so, but what you get when you get into that lower where people aren't going to be making as much or not as much money is coming in, as I should actually rescind that quality issue is because, or, or that comment, because when the money lowers, you actually f- have some freedom to play with writing and like development and quality so you get these more interesting shows Hmm. you won't get mad men or breaking bad or better call saul on nbc because there's too much money involved and so or whatever channel big bang theory is like i talked about i think the lead actor now makes a million dollars an episode right probably so but when you make that much money you have to make sure you don't scare anybody away. Safe money. Yeah. So it's like when you have that much money going on, that much money related to a show, there's a lot more hands involved. But when there's no money at risk or very little money at risk, then you get these shows where the writing can get a lot better or the creativity can get a lot better. So there's like the lower the money goes in the shows and this is what Louis C.K. talked about where I think he funded a lot of stuff himself Yeah. because the more he funds the more of his own money it's put in there the more creative freedom he's given because when you're using somebody else's money then they want some input into it 
And when they want input into it, then they get scared. Like we don't want to scare away these people. We don't want to scare away that market. We need to make sure we stay in a safe bubble, a little safe realm to protect our investment. Do you understand what? I do. I do. It's fascinating because this is also found in the film industry. It's like people are asking, why why are so many films sequels? Why are so many films tentpole studio projects? And why are there not enough original, smaller scale indie? It's because of that. Because these days, money, uh, a lot of studio execs are losing a lot of money and they want to not lose money so they can go with a with a uh, what's the word looking for a property that they know can sell it's safe it's safe as opposed to the indie filmmaker who has a great story an original idea uh, but even then they have to fight tooth and nail to get a budget to make it which I read a stat today on the news that says that a lot of people are not going to the films for, are not going to theaters for indie independent films no more they or not as much that could be true. I haven't seen that. I mean, it's always been a niche market. I still do, but that's not... That's just me. And I've been in theaters alone. But I think with, like, the big-budget films, uh, especially all these superhero uh, movies... Which, going, I'm, honestly, I'm a little tired of. I'm like, I, it's, it's too much. Like, I, for me, it's all becoming similar in some way. It, it is, but... <clears throat> I'm not gonna. Well, Deadpool was good. Well, because Deadpool was so different, yeah. right? But Deadpool was good. But what I was gonna say was, it's not hard to translate these movies. And I'm going to be. I don't want to be disparaging or uh, or you know put somebody down. But if you think about what these movies are, you think about little kids programming. What do you get in like little kids programming? You get bright colors you get lots of noises and you get movement i'm talking like tv shows for toddlers right really basic story really basic language and just a lot of movement noise and sound and color that's all these fucking movies are so you're this adult going to see what's the basically a version of what you know the concept of three-year-old programming or programming for a child is you know don't create any complex Characters don't uh, complex situations. Just make it all about the noise, movement, action, sound, color. Mm-hmm. You know, and you just clap ha, ha, like a little kid. And so, <laughs> but in the reality, though, in the reality, it makes it great because right now the growing market's Asia. Yeah, and that's where a large part, if not the largest part, of the money's coming from for the film industry. It's not domestic; it's foreign. And when you have complex characters with complex dialogue, that's a lot harder to translate culturally or just to translate, period. But you could turn the fucking sound off in most of these movies and get the plot. What's going on? Yeah. She, look, she looks angry. He looks yeah, angry. Yeah, that's a bad guy. That's a good guy. A, yeah. <laughs> you don't need the sound. You don't need the plot in right. any of this. Uh-huh. And so... And so... You know, it's simple, but it's also feeding on known characters and known characters on a superficial level. And that plays a lot into, you know, getting multiple generations. Because I think the shot right now is when you use a Superman or a Batman, you're not just getting like kids that grew up in the 90s or the 2000s or comic book you can you have multiple generations to pull back on mm-hmm. who grew up on these characters that get recycled so you you get a wider berth of 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 age range or demographics going into it but um but as far as the superhero thing goes like i said i think it's just it's 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 kind of like ronald mcdonald uh, Ronald McDonald's recognized anywhere. You don't need a lot of cultural background going into it to understand right. what McDonald's is. It's a brand. Yeah, and, and so you can stick one in Japan, you can stick one in Hong Kong, you can stick one in maybe United Arab Emirates. I don't know if there is one. I know there's a Pizza Hut because I've been there. Uh, but you don't need a lot of background. And so with what well, I was going to say with independent films... Is that a you need uh, the ability to pay attention? They talk about shortened attention spans, but we, 
whatever about that. Uh, you don't need cultural references. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't need to understand because things don't translate. And what I mean by that is our relationship with gender, sexual relations, family, might not be the same as it is in another country. So you have to have this background knowledge going into this film. So even if they translate it in the native language, can they translate the culture? You know, that unseen culture that, well, this is how things work here. So that's why we talk to each other this way. Mm -hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. But in a fucking supermarket, you don't need any of that. Right. You don't, you don't have the background. Is it Mama Fuko? I think Mama Fuko is this like really popular. Yeah, by uh, David Chang. In, in New York City. Yeah, restaurant by David yeah. Chang. Who's... So, so you know the name of it. Yeah. You know what he's about. You, you kind of get some of his background maybe if you get into it. You well, understand what I do because I ate a lot. And okay. I love to cook. But you don't get that when you go into fucking McDonald's. Right. Do you understand? Well, they kind of try with the McRib once in a while. But but that's what I'm saying. You don't get that knowledge. You don't get the history. You don't go in there going, oh, this is inspired by X, Y, and Z. And this is Infusion. And this is oh, his background. Okay. And this is who the chef is. And this is what the chef's done. Nobody gives a fuck. God damn, we cuss too much. Nobody it's okay. You nobody, cuss nobody it's ca cares going into McDonald's. Uh -huh. And it's the same with the independent film. You have some... You're going in for a deeper understanding and a greater experience. Beyond of what is seen on the screen. Yeah. Got it. So you're like, okay, so this you, person made this independent film. I like this person and his works. Yeah. Or or, or the DP or, or the screenwriter. Which I, I, I may realize that's very true. Uh, now that I think about it, uh, I think you, you hit something there with me. I just realized that you are completely right. Because when I do go to watch an independent film, I kind of like going in already knowing... Who is it by, or is it somebody I recognize from previous work? Because, I mean, once in a while I do go into a film blind, like, oh, it looks, it sounds interesting. I go in, and I, sometimes it's great, sometimes it's not. But usually, I think about eighty percent of the time, I much prefer to know, have a gist that it's somewhat good, because I'm investing money to spend about an hour and a half to watch this film. So if it helps me, that's made, it's made by Wes Anderson. It helps me to know that it's written by, uh, by Kaufman or something like that. And I guess I should say though, with Comic Con and the popularity of like nerd culture and geekdom, there are a lot of people invested in these superhero films who can tell you. There are that there is that aspect. But I'm not addressing them because that's not what's making them blockbusters. The it's, fanboy. It's not the fanboy making them blockbusters. Because if those movies only went to the fanboy it would be a very small audience and the mm. globally what's your what's your opinion on the fanboys good or bad because <laughs> me there's sometimes where there's some fan fans who kind of overreact are, are you talking like internet where you criticize things yeah I, it's hard for me because I'm very critical when I watch TV I'm very critical when I watch God, what movie did I just go see uh, oh the nice nice guys yeah. Did you like it? I loved it. I did, but see, like, I thought the same exact thing. So they go into the daughter's, it's 1977. Uh -huh. They go into the daughter's, because I have a, like, new wave punk rock background. They go into the daughter's uh, bedroom. She has a Sex Pistols poster and she has a Blondie poster. Now, she could technically have a Sex Pistols poster, but Blondie she most likely wouldn't have because... Even though Blondie put out an album in 76, it was a complete failure, at least domestically. Mm -hmm. It did okay in, like, Australia. It was relatively unknown, and she was still unknown for a 12-year-old girl in Los Angeles. Right. Even though it is Los Angeles, unless her father worked in the industry, would not have known a Blondie for, like, a year or two more. Okay. It would have still been one or two years. And then you also have to take, if you know who Rodney Bingenheimer is, he came from San Jose, Rodney on the Rock and KROQ. They didn't start playing new wave punk rock maybe in 77, but there wasn't a radio station really playing it at that time. And so 
for her to have that poster in her in that scene when in they're in the scene, bed yeah was about a year or two too early and that ruined the movie for you no but it was like that <laughs> fanboy thing where I'm like fuck should I let it go like, do I even bring it up because I'm with my girlfriend oh sorry yeah I'm with my girlfriend she doesn't care about this stuff I'm like I need you know like to her and maybe she could have but to me, it was like, it didn't ruin the movie or anything. It was just sloppy. Yeah. It's, it's like, well, who do you blame? The set director? Uh, the, the set designer? Or, or, Probably. Yeah. Or maybe some people just like, oh, that seemed to be... Really, that stuff wouldn't have been popular, popular for a 13-year-old girl. Probably until like 79, 80, 81, 82. Uh-huh. Because you kind of has to filter down from the top hipsters to make it down to a 13-year-old girl. Right. It's got a filtering process. Uh-huh. And then the other one was, why don't you guys, they're in the bar, and a dude, and the bartender said, when they were going to go there at the hotel, said, why don't you guys just chill, or chill out here? Mm-hmm. And I was like, ooh, was chill slang then? <laughs> it seems very something that didn't come around until like the late 80s, 90s, wasn't like this... You know, like, you know, man, me as a writer, people like you are great and scary at the same time. I don't know, though. I could be wrong. Maybe people use chill. But the fact that, that part of your brain goes, hey, I don't, I'm not too sure about that dialogue. I'm not too sure. So for me, it's like when I write stuff, it's like, oh, my God, is someone going to criticize this line? Like, I don't know. Like, especially if you're writing a period piece. It's like, how much uh, creative license do you have to... You know, write a certain way that's not really uh, what they said at the time. Well, well, on the flip side of the coin, well, let's go back. There is a company, not a company. What did they say? Someone on the internet, they went through Mad Men and was posting everything that was wrong in Mad Men, as far as like a vernacular or technology or how they talk you know mm-hmm. and so they're just like oh this this usage wouldn't have happened until like 76 this usage wouldn't have happened at this word until x y and z and so there are people that do that right and especially i mean fuck if you have a bunch of writers who are you know 20 to 40 you know even if you're 40 years old you weren't born until well at this time 76 you weren't alive in 1960-whatever during Mad Men. So what the hell do you know about what was being said? And at the same time, I think if you actually tried to use correct vernacular, uh, as far as if you're going with slang, some of it might be lost or or, or straight out offensive. Yeah, or straight out offensive. But, like, I listened to the song. Have you ever heard of... Uh, um, Guys, the lead singer of Modern Lovers. Modern Lovers. Uh, it's a oh God. Uh, people are gonna be pissed. Jonathan Richmond is his name. He's a singer. He's got the song called "I'm Straight." It has nothing to do with sexuality. It's all about the fact that he doesn't use drugs. Mm. But at the time, to use that term, no man, I'm straight. Right. Kind of like the straight edge punk rock thing later on. To say no man I'm straight meant like, oh, I don't do drugs. But if you use it in a modern time and you put it in a modern film, it's like, why is he telling them he's straight? Like, I think a modern audience would not get the cultural reference of the time. They would take it not meaning that he doesn't use drugs and being like, why is he announcing his sexuality in the middle of this scene? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So you got. I think you have to tweak the language a little right. bit because I think you can lose people. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're gonna be like, let's smoke some Mary Jane, some reefer. You know, like. <laughs> like. Well, you, it's funny you say that. Uh, I catch myself saying the word "straight" in that sense of like straight edge. Yeah. Um, but I don't know where it came from because you're right. In these days, I, it's used differently. Yeah. And then there was another one. I was reading an article on, uh, honestly, it's online. It was well, it was posted on Facebook. It was about uh, L.A. punk gangs, and so, and the guy was talking about frying. And do you know what frying is? No. Frying. Do I want to know what it means? Taking acid. Oh. But it was a modern article, which I'm going. I don't think anybody uses that term anymore. When was that term used? In the 80s? Yeah. Okay. So basically, frying was 
It's like today they use Molly, like uh, right? Yeah. To, to to take a pill, I'm taking Molly. So, but frying was specifically for LSD. LSD. Are you frying? Right. Means are you having a trip on LSD, basically? So that was a very so I think that would be totally lost. Mm-hmm. So I guess you have to update it or change it or yeah. So now, because it's kind of, for me, I see a correlation with that and the way people are writing for safe content, where it's a lot simpler. Uh, for the your demographics you're aiming for, like the TV shows you write or, or the films you're making, uh, in some way does that dumb down our culture? Don't you think? Like if we're doing more simpler things instead of kind of bringing more complex are subjects. Are you talking about in film or are you talking about in everything, TV? even in TV shows? I mean, I think I think there's always going to be a level of how can I say this? Are we getting dumber or? I don't have the numbers on that. I don't have the numbers. Like, are we yeah, as a culture? I, my head's like, oh yeah, there's about 50, 50% of the population is dumb. Have we always <laughs> been this dumb? Are we getting dumber? Or have we just, you know, as far as... Um, some things like on movies and stuff, mm-hmm. I see it as... With movies, I see it as... Um, an issue, say, like I talked about translating into other languages. You know, complex language means complex translations, tr- complex concepts. You know, like I listened to uh, this guy talk on NPR, and I don't know if this is true. This was his perspective. He was of Vietnamese descent. Uh, he was talking about you know the phrase what if uh what if we didn't you know what if we didn't what would have happened if we didn't get on the train what if would happen if we didn't get on the bus what if and when he was talking to relatives from vietnam especially older relatives like that sounds odd but that whole concept was foreign to them the what if concept yeah there is no what if there's just what happened mm. You know, there is no what if. Fascinating. And so, like, to have these conversations were difficult because it was more like, why would you ask what if you didn't? Like, you only what happened happened. And so, this was his perspective in his family. I don't know if this is a huge cultural thing or not. I, I can't speak to this. And I'm basically paraphrasing a, a, a radio program I listened to a while ago. But my point being is, there are cultural concepts that don't translate easily in general. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the simplification of language, the simplification of writing, uh, is a dumbass down? I don't know. I think it has a practical purpose. I think it has a practical purpose because that's the one thing I don't know if you remember from my class. And if anybody doesn't know, listening to podcasts, that's how we know each other, I guess, because you took a class by me. Uh, Hopefully I don't say anything that gets me fired. Uh, but, uh, but I lost my train of thought. Holy shit, I lost my train of thought. It's a well. You just got me with the what if question. I guess is that some way does that reflect Eastern philosophy? Because I think the key basis of Western philosophy is that what if questions. Like what if this means that? Or what what if? That I don't I do know. I'm, I'm not enough of a... I haven't studied enough philosophy. I know some basics. Right, but but the question of, of like of, of being curious enough in, in innovation, being like, what if I tried this? And it, 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 I'm a little... Uh, or maybe I'm, I'm, I'm interpreting it wrong the way you say that in Vietnamese culture. They don't have the what if concept. Well, I don't know. Like, I, like I still want to put that with a giant asterisk. I heard this on a radio program of <laughs> one person... Uh, anecdotal experience might not be a giant cultural thing throughout the Vietnamese culture it might have been just his family experience mm-hmm. so but it was still interesting I was just using it as an example of a broader example uh, uh, so I do as far as like the culturally like difference in between Eastern and Western philosophy, I honestly don't even want to touch because I don't, I'm not schooled enough about it. I feel like I'm just like somebody watching 
football in an armchair <laughs> and talking about how smart I am and I don't know enough about it to even touch. That's, that, that's an answer. That's you a respectful know, answer. I, I, I know a little bit about Western history because it has inf- it does influence media. How so? Because during the Age of Enlightenment, we went into uh, what we call the period of modernism and the period of modernism the age of enlightenment and which led to the age of reason well there's two ways it does because the age of reason and enlightenment reason led to the industrial revolution which led to all the technology that developed so much of modern day included media you know the industrial revolution at the same time we're getting the gramophone and phonograph so we get the record player we get uh movie projectors we get telephones we get uh, radio all this and it's through the age of reason and enlightenment and the age of reason was this like no fire doesn't just happen because God made fire happen fire there's a chemical process going on there's a scientific understanding that's what the age of reason is that things can be explained and once you start trying to explain why something happens then you can build upon that. And that's kind of the birthplace of the Industrial Revolution. At the same time, there's all these different thinkers that took place at this time, uh, like Voltaire and Rousseau. And so uh, there's also a greater emphasis put on the individual. This is where we get this, like, all men are created equal and all men are free, blah, blah, blah. Because it was breaking away. Even though we don't refer to it as a caste system in the Western culture, it's somewhat a caste system in the feudal. Like if you're born in uh, 1650, you miraculously die. Well, you not miraculously die. You die 20 years later and you're somehow reborn in 1750. Your status of life would have been exactly the same in a hundred year period. If you were a farmer, you would have been a farmer a hundred years later. Nothing would have changed. There was no social mobility. You were stuck in your class, regardless if we don't want to call the caste system or not. You're stuck in your class at that time. So what happens through, um, you know, Hamilton's all about the the play that's out now about how he was an orphan or yeah, uh, 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 from Latino descent. You know, he's yeah. like an orphan X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden. You know, he rises to power. That's the great American story. That story couldn't take place 200 years prior. You're a fucking orphan. You're, you're fucked. That's it. But through the age of enlightenment and the age of reason, we get these concepts that the individual is more important than anything. Mm-hmm. And it also has what they call the rejection of... Uh, of um, of uh, not just tra- not tradition, uh, superstition, which some could see as coded as rejection of religion. Not that religion was rejected completely, but what they call super- superstition, that things weren't just miraculously happening and miracles and all this and magic. It was like there was logical reasons and everybody's born the same. And if you, it's more like if you just came into the right family or not type issue you nothing you weren't granted by the grace of God to be in a better position and so there's more emphasis on individuals and so I say like so much of the age of enlightenment and reason kind of or modernism affected media especially in the western cultures because you see it in the most modern concept of how important the individual is how important the individual you have a podcast you know, we're at a point in where we can create our own content. You know, Facebook and Instagram is filled with pages of people of selfies showing what's going on in their lives and that they're important. Your parents constantly raised you, I don't know about you specifically, telling you and the royal you, you're the most important thing in the world. <laughs> you're the most important thing in the world. Well, I, I think I, I think growing up, the education system is like that, where like, you can be anything you want. Because honestly, m- my family was like, well, do what you want, but you, you, it's, we're a family, so we can't do this together. But I know growing up, my generation, especially the millennials, are like, you are special. You could you could be whatever you want. 
if you study hard, this and that, as opposed to a different take of like you're part of a system. Well, see, and that's and even though I didn't want to talk about, it, I think that's where it differs between Eastern philosophy. I think from my understanding, my very limited understanding, I could be completely wrong. I could be just this white guy, like, hey, I'm a white guy who knows everything about the world. But I could be very wrong. But my understanding of Eastern philosophy, or a lot of the thinking is, is that you're part of a group. You're part of a group. Uh, I think I, I read I read an article once that talked about, like, it kind of made the analogy of being disciplined in a store. You know, where if you're doing something wrong as a little kid, and your parents came and disciplined you, they're like, hey, you're a failure, you're doing something wrong, or look at how you're acting, look at what you are doing wrong. Where someone was talking about in a Japanese grocery store, the same parent might come up and say, hey, look how you're affecting all these other people. Look what you're doing to these other people. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so like the emphasis in the Western culture is on you, Versus the emphasis in the Eastern culture may be more communal or social or the greater society, uh, or how you fit in the system. Mm-hmm. But but all this type. So it goes back to the idea of like, you know, especially we have this fame-driven culture now. Yeah. Where people just want to be famous for being famous. Is this kind of the end product of you know modernism? where the individual is the most important thing, you know? And at what point does the individual, I, this is getting way too philosophical, but what point does the individual become more important than God, if you believe in the God, or just the broad concept of a God, mm-hmm. of this higher being thing? When does the individual as a whole surpass God? I think we, we've reached that point. I, I think uh, the fact that genetic modification is within our grasp uh, I, I think uh, for me that's one of the signs that this this concept of God and what he does we're kind of coming in and manipulating that very similar about how you talk about how modernism came about it's like fire didn't come in from from magic it came from us we can make fire therefore let's build upon that so at that point already a a, a, a limb of this complex of God has been taken out by man and now when it comes to genetic genetic mutations and I think we reached that point man I, I think especially with this YouTube fame thing like I'm not sure I'm sure you mentioned about it uh, the YouTube fame uh, individual superstardom it's like I, I think you're right I think at that point at least here in the United States and most because I'm not too sure about some parts in Europe but here in the US for sure there's this thing of like we can create our world the way we want it individually which is I think leads into why there's a lot of uh, polarizing almost tribal uh, separation in our culture whether it's political or whether it's lifestyle Uh, so I I think that's a great philosophical question a lot of us should be asking ourselves well well, the funny thing is is like this niche marketing uh and again, it goes from, uh, I think it's Chris Anderson, it's the guy who I'm talking about, who came up with the concept of the long tail. Uh, but the niche marketing that happens is like this pro and this con. It's really bad for traditional broadcasters because in 1977, there's three channels. Everybody got television over the bunny ears, over you know broadcasts, and you watched either NBC, CBS, or ABC. You have no internet, you have no escapes, television, most families only own one television. So you had all four or five, however many people you had in your family watching a single television on one of those three channels. Now we have all this niche marketing out there. So it hits the broadcasters hard. Like they're losing viewerships. A lot of people keep saying it's cable dead, you know, it's broadcast TV dead, people are uh, cable shaving, going to the internet, going to Roku, Hulu, etc. But on the flip side of the coin, for YouTube, it's great. Because YouTube doesn't care if you're a blockbuster. YouTube only needs one million of you guys all trying to be blockbusters. Because they're just selling content. So it doesn't matter if your individual content is successful. It's... Uh, they just need content as a whole. It's the same with iTunes. 
iTunes doesn't care if you made an album and you sold 15 or 20 or 10. They wouldn't care. What you what iTunes needs is just millions of you. Because instead of having like 1977, if we want to go back to Led Zeppelin or 78, you know, you know, we they don't need one Led Zeppelin selling 10 million records because they have 10 million people selling one record. You understand what I'm saying? Right. So the record industry as a whole loses money, but then you have these new companies like iTunes or Apple who will still get their money. So there's a mechanism <clears throat> because even though we talk about this as like personal choices and freedom and having niche markets, at the end of the day, I mean, having freedom and choices and individuality, at the end of the day, all this content is just a product and a commodity. If you And so, and I don't like to always get too far away from that concept, mm-hmm. that it's just a product that's being sold at the end of the day. Well, to, to consumers, it's a product, but to a lot of the artists, it's it's uh, blood, sweat, and tears and time. It is, it is. Which, but, but SoundCloud wouldn't exist if they didn't have a business model, a corporate statement, investors. And so even though on your end, you're using SoundCloud to get out your personal uh, artistic vision or, or, or beliefs, SoundCloud exists not just to facilitate that, but to make money. Mm-hmm. So to them, they don't care about your artistic vision. Right. They just need enough of you guys paying the $15. So there is these pros and cons. I also do think there are some negatives to the, to the niche marketing as far as uh, uh, interacting with human beings because like I don't watch sports. I could care shitless. I know you have a an unnamed sport team on your I'm, shirt right now. I'm currently wearing a 49ers shirt. Yes, but I don't care about Big sports, fan. so I don't have any way to relate to you on sports. And so, like I'm watching. I like a band called Andrew Jackson Jihad. In two years, maybe it'll be different. Mm-hmm. I used to love Naruto, but I kind of like done. It's over. Uh, you know, so like I watch silly cartoons, even though I'm an older man and X, Y, and Z. So I don't have like, like a Venn Dam- d- uh, diagram of overlap to like, so like in the 1990s when every asshole's watching uh, Friends or Seinfeld and they all go the next day and like quote Jerry from Seinfeld. Right. Like, oh, did you see that episode? Oh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's water cooler conversation. Yeah, yeah, but it's a way to kind of bond it's a bonding ritual. Yeah. We're losing this. We're, we are niching ourselves into little tribal communities. So we're getting the freedom to really go after what we want, but we're losing, even if they're superficial reference points, to have any way to kind of cross over and interact. I, I, I think it's changing. I'm not sure if we're losing it because even with today, like for example... I think a lot of it is more online now than it is in person. Because uh, Game of Thrones, a lot of people, you know, love to talk about right after an episode. And a lot of people go online to go chat about it or go to post videos, reaction videos about it. I, I think it's just, I think the face of that communal uh, uh, information exchange of ideas or, or perspective is just changing its face, I, I believe. Um for example, for Naruto, it's like if we both were into Naruto, it's like we totally could talk about Naruto. Uh, if not talking verbally, but maybe like through like a forum or something. But see, that's where I think I differ a little bit of age. And you have to understand, I'm also like an early adopter. I've kind of run out of my early adopter. Just get older and you'd stop caring. Because, <laughs> you know, I was on Prodigy before AOL was even huge. And like my internet, like my online presence. And so you like, I used to use ICQ and, you know, fucking all, I've been through everything. It all sounds Greek to me. <laughs> I've been through everything from like geo sites to like MySpace to, you know, and living in, in, in an online community and emailing random people I don't know all over the world. But I do, there is an old school part of me where it's like that actual person to person physical tangible not that you want to go around touching every human you know but that real life in real life if we want to go back IRL 
experience of having actual people that you interact with. Mm-hmm. And I do feel there's something limited there because I was talking like <clears throat> my friend, uh, I can't, I, I can't say too much, but, uh, my friend's working on a, uh, a, a, a live action show for Nickelodeon. I'll say that much. And so I text him. He's a lot younger than me. I text him yesterday and I asked him like, Oh, Hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm on this live action film for Nickelodeon. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I asked a question. He answered back. Oh, it's got this person, that person on it. Like one of them I recognized. Mm-hmm. And that was the end of the story. My girlfriend comes home. I'm like, because one of them was like a famous comedian. That's why I like, I just non-disclosure. I can't, I don't know what his NDL is. So I can't say too much about who <laughs> these people. My point being is I was like oh, telling yeah. my girlfriend, oh, so-and-so is working on a a show with this famous comedian or famous to us and she's like oh what's it about x y you know what's it about what's the show what's this what's that i'm like i don't know because we're talking over text and i was and i don't like to make references to millennials or anybody i don't like to use those kind of classifications but i did i'm like well i think in the millennial aspect tell me hey working on a show this dude's on it is the equivalent of actually telling me in depth. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's, it's simplifying again, it, it, uh, language. Yeah, it's simplifying and like, but to me, it's like, I think that's the equivalent of actually having a deep, like, like those two texts of basic information somehow make up for like a 30 minute conversation of what's going on. Right. But it doesn't tell you anything. It doesn't give you the prospect, I mean, the perspective of, what's happening puts you in the motion moment uh-huh. it doesn't put you in the moment i think that's what storytelling used to be as when i tell you a story i'm trying to put you into that story so you can actually visualize it mm-hmm. that you experienced it with me i'm sharing my experience but i'm sharing it in a way that has you placed in the story mm-hmm. so it's kind of like virtual reality here look through my telling you the story so you can visualize and be there with me but now, like the simplification language, we're not getting enough information to actually be part of the story anymore. Do you know what I mean? Do you yeah, understand? Yeah. Or, or, or go into deeper, deeper yeah. things. Did yeah. you Did you see the lobster? I'm not gonna see that anytime soon. I've not. Okay. Okay. Because uh, uh, I almost felt like I, I, I wanted to. I wanted to so bad, but this this girl I was dating, she saw it by herself, and she's like, "It's <laughs> over." I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what what the fuck is in this movie? Do I want to know what this movie for well, her yeah, to be like, the, the, it's the, over? The point being, like, I guess, I don't know if this is why she meant this, because that language was so simple. And I have a lot of people on Facebook, I'm talking about Facebook, who love the movie, a lot of young field people. But to me, I literally was watch, like watching eight-year-olds explain what it meant to have relationships. <laughs> so for you, you're like, dude, this is like, like, you kids have no like, but I but I think I think it was intentional. The oh. language and the concepts and everything were so simplified, so basic, and in a good or a bad way. I well, that's it's kind of like I heard someone talk about Birdman, and someone said with Birdman, they go, "If you told me this was the best film ever made, I'd agree with you. If you told me this was the worst film ever made, I'd agree with you." And I kind of feel that way about this. If you told me it was a great film. Yeah, I can see that. You tell me it's a really shitty film. Yeah, I can see that. I'm kind of like, right. I can't tell you one way or the other. You have to make up your own mind. But there's, I don't know if I like it or hate it. I really don't yet. Mm-hmm. But that's what a good independent film does. Leaves you pondering. How much does fucking X Men leave you pondering? Yeah. <laughs> when you walk out, how long? How long are you gonna go and kick back on your bed and late at night and think about like what? What happened? What? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. It, it's a flash in the past. Everything was there, right? <laughs> you don't have anything to question when you leave. I mean, you could, but you don't have anything to ponder or ruminate over as when you leave. Yeah. Talk about pondering. Uh, another great concept that I learned in your class, which which you know really had me thinking, is that especially since we're talking about uh, content and entertainment, it's like more and more products are tangible meaning you can go to the store and buy an album 
as opposed to going to iTunes and downloading an album. Where it's like, peop- there's so many missing factors that people are not really getting from this artist. For example, if you go to get a CD, you could look at the artwork of a CD. You could, you could, some CDs have special stuff in them or, or vinyls. I'm sorry that your phone is causing. Oh, that. shit. Yeah. Sorry. Sensitive mics. But then if you just download stuff, it's like you get nothing much of it besides just the song. And maybe it, it creates less sentimental value. Which, which I agree. But again, am I talking generationally? Because I grew up, I mean, I wasn't born in the 60s, but. I did have like that reference to uh, the Beatles. So you have what they have is concept albums. You know, Sgt. Pepper's taken as a whole album. You know, Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys, which like or don't like, is supposed to be taken as a whole album. So it's a whole album of experience. And there is a tangible aspect of of being able to touch it, the liner notes, the artwork. You used to actually have a decent career. Did you know who the comedian Phil Hartman was? Uh, yeah, it rings a bell. Okay, well, look him up. He used to be on Saturday Night Live. He did a lot of the voices on Simpsons back in the day, like the, Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You might remember me from blah, blah. He did, like, early 90s. But he was awesome. He used to have a whole career before he got into comedian. I mean, comedy, comedian. Uh doing graphic design and like album covers and artists used to make album covers they like put money out to have these and i'm sure they still do but like the album like i have books of album covers because the artwork of the album cover i don't want to say books like books like you know retrospectives of looking back at significant album cover art Mm -hmm. that was important but the album itself you know like a lot of pink floyd albums are taken, you know, especially everybody knows The Wall, but The mm-hmm. Wall is one long ass story. But a lot of their albums are concept albums that are supposed to be taken as a whole. Some of David Bowie's albums are the same way. You take the album as a whole, it's not an individual piece of work. It's kind of like going to see a play or a movie and only seeing a small section of it instead of the complete work. Uh, but the other thing that I was going to talk like the tangible aspect is ownership of culture and this gets kind of way into the class and a little preachy but uh daniel Eck, i guess that's how you say his name is ek uh the guy that started spotify said the future is no longer acquiring buying albums it's paying for access mm-hmm. so you're no longer paying for the album you're paying for the access to the album so this is the future of the music and so I, I, I make these uh, kind of uh, demonstrations or uh, make this uh, uh, example in my class about like if it was 1970, you went and bought a record player, you went and bought the record you want to hear, you listen to it, guess what? You're fucking done. Your financial relationship with who produced the album, who produced the record player, all this stuff with these companies, is done. You gave them the money, you got your product, it's done. You don't have this long-term relationship where you're on the hook like you are with modern phones or you keep having to update your MP3 player or whatever, you know, in your phone or if you had an individual one every two to three to four years because a new model or this or that. You fucking... Left the 1969 with the same record player you started the 80s with. It's a fucking record player. It does one job. It plays records. As long as you didn't break it, it keeps playing the record. Your financial relationship is done. And you own that. But then my other part was, is the question of ownership of culture. We, for the most part, regardless, uh, even in this country, regardless of race or well, let's just put a race. The vast majority of us had no access to culture until the Industrial Revolution. We were all pretty much poor. We worked on farms. You know, our cultural life might have been related to church and songs related to that and spiritual. But we didn't go to movies. We didn't go to, oh, well, movies didn't exist. Opera, theater. These things were out of reach for us. Most Americans were illiterate. 
couldn't read. All this stuff was for rich people. Getting educated, having books, going to theater, all these forms of representation of culture were all for the rich or the well-off or the upper middle class at least. And so as the middle class actually expanded and we gained forms of culture, uh, we were able to purchase it because that culture supposedly represents us, who we are, that individual we made ourselves. We talked earlier about creating, being an individual. So what does it mean when we no longer can own or choose not to own those artifacts that supposedly represent us? Or do they represent us? Or do we care anymore? You know, usually you buy your favorite music or you buy your favorite albums, you buy your favorite uh, movies that you really liked. You know, I don't buy every single movie, but I have like more important ones to me I own on DVD or whatever. But what happens when we no longer own the culture that represents us, but we're paying for the access to the culture? Mm -hmm. And so just having it, it's kind of like having a, a, a table out in a book. You go to someone's house and they have like a coffee table and they have a couple books and a couple magazines there and you come into the room and you're saying, hey, this represents part of me, my style, my flavor, who I am. So it's having these little the movies around. But we're not even having this representation of our existence within our house. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. Like we don't have the movies, we don't have the books. I'll, 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 sorry, I kind of went on a rampant there. No, but there was a question of that. So what does it mean? Because we're basically sharecropping culture. We don't even get to own our culture anymore, in a sense. And the bigger scary picture here is who are these gatekeepers that give us access to the culture? You know, it's like Netflix. Netflix, you you pretty much pay to get access to these TV shows and films. But they get to choose which films and TVs to have on there. So in some ways, they direct influence uh, people's taste in some way. They, well, it's kind of funny because I, actually these people, I know who they are more than not because they're actually from Santa Cruz. <laughs> the founders of Netflix. Are they from Santa Cruz? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. And you know them? I don't know them, know uh -oh. them but you know that <laughs> around... In Santa Cruz, all know each other more or less? Yeah, it's yeah. kind of like seven, so and so. seven degrees of separation. Right. So it's kind of like that. It's I don't know them personally, but like, oh, we just went to a party at blah, blah, blah's house Yeah. for some fundraiser, and that would be like one of those guys. I'm like, oh, you went to there? Okay. So shit like that, but but I understand what you're saying. There is that that scary factor of who controls the message, who controls the information getting out to us, who controls what we're exposed to. I've had this debate, and I don't think people have really cared or responded well because the uh, the Academy, which puts on the Oscars. Uh, Academy of Science and Arts, which does puts on the Oscars, uh, the that's what the Academy Awards are. They've been historically majority white because that represent the industry because you had to be in the film industry to be part of the Academy to vote. Mm -hmm. They've been majority white, but not only were they majority white, they're majority male, and they were majority now currently over sixty. So even though they are not the gatekeepers. We always look at, oh, it's an Oscar winner, Oscar winner, Oscar winner, as though that has some cachet, that has some importance to it, saying this is what the best film or representation of our culture or the industry of that year was. But when you think about this, especially if you have younger listeners or yourself, you think, okay, well, who do I know that's 60, 65? Do I have the same taste that they do? Let me think of every 65-year-old white guy I know. Is my taste and their taste the same? So there's a very limited spectrum, and so there's a lot of talk about like straight out of Compton not getting any uh, uh, award nominations last year. And I don't know how long this is going to be up, so if this is a few years later, uh, look up when Straight Out of Compton was nominated. Uh, when Straight Out of Compton was nominated, you can say, okay, is it racist or is there a generational issue going on? Because 20 years ago, even that, say 24 years ago, when, you know, 
uh, NWA was really popular in 92, uh, a lot of these guys who were 65 were 40. They were not part of the demographic for the music, and the demographic was not specifically Hispanic or black. Actually, the demographic at that time was 16 to 20-year-old white guys who they were selling the albums to. That was the key market for this gangster rap at the time. But my point being was, 40-year-old man living in Los Angeles in 92, uh, raising a family, working in the film industry, you know what scared the shit out of him? Gang violence and the riots. So when Straight Outta Compton comes out of the movie, when he's 65, does he give a fuck to go see that? Because does it represent part of his youth or the conflict going on or representation of the culture? Or does it represent the time that he had to sell his house because he was scared to live in L.A. anymore? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so there's like a generational issue. So when you have a bunch of 65-year-olds who said rap was shit when it first came out because they were already 40, why would they give a fuck about it now? So... So I do say, like, it's kind of went off of the gatekeeper thing, but there are people who are making judgment calls out there, what's important to our culture, that we don't really kind of think about who they are. And I'm not citing them because I'm not saying that, they're oh, they're a bunch of racist assholes. No, they're 65-year-old men. Why would they fucking care about NWA? Hmm. It was never part of their life. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was never part of their life. It might have been the quite opposite. It might have represented a scary time for them. Because they might have had a kid like, what are you listening to? Oh, what's going on? Like, might have represented a completely different side of the coin to them. So, but yes, questioning who these people are that are involved. It's just like you're saying, the gatekeepers. You have um, Susan Arnold is on the board of directors of Disney. Board of directors guides the ship. Susan Arnold's also on the board of directors for McDonald's. So she's guiding that ship. ABC owns, no, NBC owns ABC, ABC owns 2020 and news, et cetera, et cetera. Is NBC going to, not ABC, sorry, they own ABC. Is ABC going to spend a lot of time investigating the health risk of McDonald's? You know, when you share the same board members on them, you know? these overlapping relationships between these companies that's the thing that people don't really look at as like the board members uh, I think uh, MB, I think uh, Disney shares board members from people from Sears that's not really a threat from Clorox bleach Clorox company uh, with board members from and I'm not on attack or trying to get but these overlapping relationships because Disney owns Pixar, everybody, Marvel, all this shit, but they also own the news. They also own ESPN. They also own a whole history of things going down the line. So they do have an influence. And so this can generate what you're talking about, the gatekeepers, what gets out there. This can affect what we see. Mm-hmm. You know, is Pixar going to make an anti McDonald's movie anytime soon? You know, should they? I don't know, but yeah, fascinating stuff, Fred. Sorry, kind no, of, it's great. Of, kind of, we uh, we we've reached the one hour mark. Yeah, so we're closing down. Uh, Fred, uh, thank you for coming. Do you have any games to play at the end? Games? You should have like, like a trivia a, game. You need like a one hour trivia, like. <laughs> Yeah, like, I don't know, Fred, with you, with, with the amount of knowledge you got in your head, not that. I, I think you would win every game. I, I don't know. It's got to be like something like, I think it's something you need to add to your podcast as you come to the end. Uh-huh. You have to be okay. We, you have to have a closing segment. But the usually closing segment, because uh, with Pete, with my guests, usually musicians and stuff, so I go, oh, like, what, what would you do now differently if you were back younger or whatever? Uh, so... Don't think I can really ask. Can I ask that of you? Sure. <laughs> Fred, if you saw yourself when you were like 18, what advice would you give yourself? Don't kill that hooker. Not even don't kill. Don't. Like, just stay away from her. You know what? Just stay away from her in the first place. You know what I enjoy about your class? Is you would tell these stories of like... Oh, um, this is where I get fired. Uh, no, no, no. no <laughs> these stories of how, how you really hate violence. 
and how you have these uh, mouse traps or rat traps in your house. But the thing is that they're like to to make sure they don't get hurt. Yeah, they're live, live. Yeah. <laughs> what they call the live traps? Yeah. So it's it's like it for me it's like I mean that's great, but isn't that just more of a hassle of just killing these things? No. Well, a I feel it's part of uh, this is one of these bad racial jokes because I feel it's part of my uh, national heritage to relocate people like here what's your oh. <laughs> <laughs> kind of manifest destiny yeah. your own little property at your yeah. home yeah <laughs> yeah here we're gonna take you're gonna be just as happy over here in this field trust right. me like no yeah, yeah. you don't want to live here anymore. and the rat's like who's this guy who's yeah. this gatekeeper yeah. of this property yeah. telling me where i should live uh i no, it is a hassle yes but killing them which i find interesting because you have some military background i do but i joined the navy and what does that mean? I joined a something I wasn't going to be directly responsible. Like being in the Navy, I am as uh, responsible for as many deaths as the average American is. And I don't think the average American understands how many people have died to make sure we have iPhones and laptops and X, Y, and Z. I didn't get involved in anything where I'd have to be able to shoot someone. And so even though like you can like love missiles, I'm not, I didn't get like my job was, I was actually damage control. So like firefighting, making sure the ship didn't sink, that type of thing. How's your experience in that? It was all right, but it was weird because it doesn't translate. How so? You, why man is like, just because you're technically a firefighter in the Navy, like you get out and I went to go test or try to become a firefighter. They don't see it as the same on oh. the outside they interesting don't, like it's so anyway I appreciate you having me here yeah hopefully it wasn't too boring no it's great great talk we good yeah we're good